earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Today is Part 9 in the Acts of the Resurrection Life series. And if you missed any parts, the podcasts are freely posted at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. Well, today's title, Is There Really Only One Way?, will bring us to Acts 11.19 through 12.19, as we observe the intensifying efforts of Barnabas and Peter, as Acts 1.8's fulfillment is underway, and as the intensifying efforts of the opposition is underway. But to set the stage for today, I'd like to share an old legend that recounts a conversation between Jesus and the angel Gabriel, right after Jesus' ascension and return to glory. After seeing the marks on Jesus' body from the cross and shameful death on earth, Gabriel says, Master, you clearly suffered terribly for people down there. Do humans know and appreciate how much you love them and what you did for them? Jesus replied, Oh no, not yet. Right now only a handful of people in Palestine know. Gabriel, looking a bit perplexed, asked, Then what have you done to let everyone know about your love for them? Jesus replied, I've asked Peter, James, John, and a few more friends to tell others about me. Those who are told will in turn tell others, and my story will be spread to the ends of the earth. Ultimately, all humanity will hear about me and what I've done. Well, Gabriel's face showed a frown, and looking kind of skeptical, he gingerly inquired, Yes, but if Peter, James, and John grow weary, what then? What if the people who come after them forget? What if, way down the centuries, people just don't tell others about you? Is there a plan B? Jesus simply replied, No, Gabriel, no plan B. I'm counting on them to tell others about me. Well, friends, thankfully, the early disciples' track record as recorded in Acts is sterling. Recall now, in Luke's gospel, we discover that God's great plan of salvation has come to fulfillment in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus the Messiah. Then in his follow-up volume, Acts, God's plan of salvation through Jesus the Messiah continues to unfold via the person and work of the Holy Spirit, who comes after Jesus' ascension. Remember, Jesus instituted what we call the church, and this newly formed and fledgling church now becomes Holy Spirit-filled and Holy Spirit-empowered to take the message of salvation from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. This was officially inaugurated on the day of Pentecost, as Luke records back in Acts chapter 2. 
And back in Acts 1, Jesus prepped his disciples for this eventuality by teaching them about the kingdom of God over 40 days. But friends, even with these 40 days of lessons, Jesus still had to shift the disciples' mindset that was so ingrained in their psyche. I'm baffled, actually, that they couldn't shake anticipating an earthly victory, mentally gearing up for the nation of Israel to finally take its rightful place as the primary kingdom ruling all others, particularly the Roman Empire. Friends, put yourself there. Put on first century sandals. Suppose you, after centuries of harsh Roman domination and living in the midst of the uneasy alliance between pagan Rome's rule over your carefully supervised Jewish religious practices, wouldn't you be salivating for Israel to finally shine again as the apex of God's activity? Wouldn't you long for Israel to finally dominate those who have dominated your people? Well, right after Jesus' 40-day lesson during a fellowship meal, he commanded them in Acts 1, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I don't know about you, friends, but it's interesting that Jesus bypasses directly answering their question the way they expected. My take is that Jesus' answer indicated he was working diligently to redirect their minds to realize that this emerging new kingdom was not going to be established by flexing political or military muscles, military power, if you will, but rather by flexing a power that would be bestowed on them by the Holy Spirit, a power that would empower them to change the world from the inside out, one person at a time. And this change would start in their hometown Jerusalem, spread out to Judea and Samaria, and eventually make its way to the ends of the earth, Friends, Acts is laid out following this sequence in verse 8. Like a stone tossed into a calm lake, the rippling effect begins in the center, Jerusalem, and then progresses outward geographically to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Which, by the way, for early Christianity, is symbolically represented by Rome, the seat of the pagan Roman Empire, and by the acceptance of the message by the Gentile world. Acts 28, the closing chapter, ends with Paul in Rome, under house arrest. 
Here's the closing two verses. For two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, friends, before we crack open portions of Acts 11 and 12, today's chapters, I thought it'd be helpful to take stock of where we've come and just highlight a few key truths we've learned along the way. First, remember that our underlying theme, the recurring truth that is interwoven throughout Acts, is the fundamental character of God's kingdom is power. This is the core of Dr. Henry T. Blackaby's devotional reflections on Acts. His full statement is worth elaborating on. Christianity is not moral platitudes, lofty intentions, and noble thoughts. The fundamental character of God's kingdom is power. Second, the adventure of journeying through Acts becomes not merely searching for the verses where the word power appears, but uncovering the manifestations of power that are elaborated on throughout the book. In other words, friends, how power is manifested in various life situations or challenges that Christ followers face in their daily lives. Third, Remember that the notion of power is accompanied by two other terms, signs and wonders. Miracles, wonders, and signs first described Jesus' miracles in the Gospels. Miracles, which is how our word power is sometimes translated, emphasizes the nature of his works. They were powerful works, exhibiting an obvious power derived from outside mere human abilities. Wonders points to the effect produced by the viewers or bystanders or witnesses to these miracles. They were struck with amazement or wonder. Lastly, signs, a companion word to power, has a direct tie-in in that it underscores the purpose and significance of these miracles. In other words, they're signs of divine power, but also point us to an important spiritual truth. Often that spiritual truth was that Jesus was the promised Messiah and Savior of the world. Additionally, friends, signs carries with it the idea that the power of the one performing the miracles is tied to a higher spiritual dimension. Recall Jesus' closing words in Luke 24? This is what is written, The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And we know, don't we, from Acts 1.8, that that power from on high came as a direct result of receiving the Holy Spirit. Fourth and finally, I want to make sure we haven't forgotten that this power bestowed on the followers of Jesus is not exercised in a vacuum. It's not merely dispensed as cold, raw power for its own sake. And here, let's recall Matthew 9.36. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. 
Last time I shared that I'm convinced we Christ followers don't see the people around us anymore as harassed and helpless and needing a shepherd's touch to walk with them through the hard times so many of us are facing. Friends, shepherding should occur outside the walls of our safe and secure church buildings. And what about Luke 8 regarding the woman who was hemorrhaging blood for 12 years? All she wanted was to touch Jesus' cloak. Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I was aware that power has gone out from me. Over and over we see Jesus manifest his power out of love and compassion for the social and spiritual plight of people. I've said before that power cannot be divorced from compassion, and compassion cannot be divorced from love. So the disciples took their cue from their master. They began manifesting the power from on high for the same reasons. They properly saw the people around them as harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. They became keenly aware of the social and spiritual plight of people around them. Well, friends, let's keep these things in mind as we turn to Acts 19, Acts 11, I'm sorry, Acts 11, 19 through 12, 19, which opens with, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, friends, let's stop here and put handles on the phrase, the Lord's hand was with them, in verse 21. We have to think like first century Jews here, or as I like to say, put on first century sandals to grasp its significance. This expression is peppered throughout the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, and crops up as the Lord's hand the hand of the Lord, or variations thereof. Here's a metaphor symbolizing the presence of God's power to assist and or bless, even thwart and destroy. It's used both positively and negatively. For instance, in Joshua 4.24, after the Jordan River crossing, Joshua recounts both the Red Sea and Jordan River experiences, saying both miraculous events occurred so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful, and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. But in Judges 2.15, it's used negatively when Israel was being disobedient, saying, Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. In Psalm 118.14-17, we read, The Lord is my strength, or power, and my song. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things, or powerful things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. 
So, friends, from this Hebrew perspective, Acts 11.21 means that the Lord's power went with these Christ followers. Moving ahead to verse 24, we get more insight into Barnabas. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So, what should we deduce about Barnabas? If he was full of the Holy Spirit, he was full of what? Power. And listen to the reputation the Christ followers gained. In verse 26, we learn it was in Antioch they were first called Christians, the word being Christianos, or Christ's people. It may also be understood to mean an adherent or follower of Christ. In other words, a devotee or disciple. This brings back memories for me of the height of the Jesus movement in the 1960s and 70s. A popular nickname for Christians then was Jesus People. When I worked in the mainstream corporate world in New York City, I often wore a fluorescent green button on my jacket that said, I'm a Jesus People, in bold letters. One day while I was heading out for lunch, I met a homeless person asking for some spare change. Well, I gave him what I had in my pocket and saw he was staring at my button. As I walked away, he blurted out really loud, Thank you, Jesus People! Friends, I think a reasonable modern equivalent of the term in verse 26 could be the disciples were first called Jesus people at Antioch. We also learn from chapter 11 that Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, found him, and together they hung out with the Christians there for a year, teaching and mentoring them. We also learn that the Holy Spirit predicted a famine, so the Christ followers joined together and sent aid to the brothers and sisters in Judea through Barnabas and Saul. And now comes the power struggle. The empire strikes back. Chapter 12 opens with King Herod arresting some Christians. He had John's brother James executed with the sword. He also seized Peter, arrested him, and threw him in prison. But the fervent prayers of the church body yielded some amazing results, didn't they? You remember the story, don't you? Here's the Reader's Digest version. The night before Herod brought Peter to trial, Peter was sleeping between two Roman soldiers in chains. But an angel woke him up, and the chains fell off him. The angel then escorted him out of the prison. They passed right by the first and second guards. They then came to the city gate, which sprung open. After walking about a block's distance, the angel took off. Peter soon realized all this wasn't a dream or a vision and said to himself, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel to rescue me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Well, friends, see the kingdoms in conflict here? The power of the world, represented by King Herod, is at odds with the power of God, represented by King Jesus, operating in the background through the praying church. In fact, a secondary lesson here is that humans are not gods, contrary to popular opinion today in some metaphysical circles. Just read verses 21 through 24, the fate of King Herod. Shortly after these events, Herod, in all his royal regalia, 
Assyria sat on his throne and delivered a public address. The crowds shouted, This is the voice of a god and not a man. Verse 22. Immediately because Herod did not give praise to God, Yahweh, an angel of the Lord struck him and he was eaten alive by worms and died. Yuck! The Jewish historian Josephus gives us a detailed account of this experience, saying that this was a prolonged and painful death for Herod, being eaten from the inside out. Now, friends, I'm convinced that we westernized Christians, particularly in America, have a misperception of what the church is and who instituted it. Human beings did not found the church. Jesus did. After all, on one occasion, he told his disciples, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I have often taught that sometimes it's helpful to realize what was not said here. Jesus did not say, I will build your church, and Jesus did not say, you will build my church. Rather, he said, I will build my church. Jesus clearly declared that he was the way, according to John 14:6, and the way is a reference to the path or the road. Now, I mean no disrespect to those who may consider themselves skeptics, agnostics, or even atheists, or who may belong to another religious system. C.S. Lewis, one of the most intelligent atheists of our time, went on his own personal search to test the evidence for Christianity and the Bible. He said, either this man, Jesus, was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Josh McDowell, another intelligent and avowed atheist, went on his own search to find the truth about Jesus. He finally concluded, after more than 700 hours of studying this subject and thoroughly investigating its foundation, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon the minds of men, or... It is the most fantastic fact of history. There aren't many ways to God, friends. There aren't many paths to God. There aren't many roads to God. All roads may lead to Rome, but all roads do not lead to God. Friends, some of you listening have come to your own conclusion that there's only one way. There's only one path, only one road. And that way, path and road, is through God's revelation, through his written word, the Bible, which revealed this way to humankind through Israel's ancestry, through the Hebrew prophets, and finally and fully through his son, Jesus Christ. One thing we can't forget, friends, as we comb through the book of Acts, is that the spread of the gospel, once branching outside the Jewish community, did not go forth in neutral territory. The gospel was proclaimed in a land of many religious beliefs. In Antioch, there was a park called Daphne, which had a sanctuary dedicated to the god Apollo. Throughout the Roman Empire, people turned to Jesus Christ from being adherents of Artemis, 
Zeus, the Syrian cults of Baal, the emperor cult, and the mother goddess cult. Additionally, there were the Greek mystery religions that claimed special or secret knowledge for the initiated. Yet, in the midst of these varied and flourishing religions, Christianity emerged and spread, and declared itself to be the one and true way to connect with the living God, who created the heavens and the earth, and the sea and everything in them. At times the opposition was fierce, but Christ followers were motivated by and knew that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only unique Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I can see that we're nearing the end of our program. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. I'd love to hear your feedback on these teachings and what this program means or has meant to you. A listener recently wrote in with reference to part six in this series and said, I've been listening to your podcast over the last few days. I absolutely love it. You read like a dramatic novel. It keeps me entertained and I want to hear more. You're a smart fellow. Thank you for letting me listen in. I continue to look forward to hearing more. God bless, brother. Well, thanks for those encouraging and uplifting words. And remember, all podcasts of A Word from the Word are freely accessible at faithtalk1360.com. That's faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. And and if a word from the word is blessing you or edifying you, please join our team of supporters. People like you are helping keep this listener-supported program on the air. So just ask me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends. If you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.